Welcome to Sofa Security Chat Chat, episode 257 for the 27th of January, 2017. I'm Chester Wisniewski, and I'm back this week with my friend and colleague, Paul Ducklin. Welcome back, Duck. Hello, Chester, from a rather chilly United Kingdom of England. Well, it's uh, it's good to catch up with you again. Uh, we've been a little bit lax in the podcasts, and uh, not that I necessarily have to uh, explain myself per se, but I, I, I had a bit of a, a flood at my house and some other drama going on that's made it rather difficult for me to, to stay in our, our regularly scheduled rhythm. But we are back this week, and we've got some interesting things to talk about, I think, anyway. Uh, and I'll start out by discussing this recent patched and then repatched and then patched again and then not quite patched depending how you want to look at it Cisco Webex plugin sadly I've been seeing a lot of misinformation in a lot of security news stories lately and this was one of them maybe you can lay it out for us as to what actually is going on because when I saw the tweets going on about this uh, at the beginning of the week it was something like Cisco's Chrome Webex plugin has you know zero day vulnerability discovered by Tavis Ormandy but there's more to the story than that yes that as a headline Strictly speaking, that's true. The bug does exist in the Chrome version of the WebEx plugin if you use the WebEx teleconferencing, video conferencing, online meeting system from Cisco. But it turns out that, uh, of course, Tavis Ormandy found the bug in Chrome slash Chromium because he works for Google's Project Zero. So that was his frame of reference, if you like. Cisco subsequently confirmed that the bug is there if you use Internet Explorer or Firefox on Windows as well, but fortunately on Mac and Linux, not affected. So it's a Windows-specific hole. It's a rather kind of sad tale, unfortunately, and I'm oversimplifying a bit here, but it kind of boils down to a magic string. In other words, if there's a special long string of characters in a URL that you happen to visit, then that engages and sort of activates this WebEx extension and once you've activated it then you can communicate with it and you can get it to run code but the way it runs code was not strictly checked enough so it's not just running stuff that's germane to the extension. Uh, Tavis Ormandy found he could also get it to for example to load and run stuff of his choice out of msvcrt.dll. So almost like a kind of accidental backdoor that once you knew the magic string and once you knew what the purpose of that string was that it actually caused a feature to get set if you like or activated inside your browser it was pretty obvious that it was likely to cause something to go horribly wrong and it did remote code execution webex is a tricky thing that way and it's it's a complicated thing from a malware perspective in general because uh, you know I've seen this on on Windows for example where when we were originally developing our HIPS technology tools like WebEx will capture all your keystrokes capture video from your screen to display remotely all that kind of stuff which often looks like uh, a spyware trojan right so th there, there's quite a, a deep level these conferencing tools need to get down into your operating system and uh, you know that I guess means they need to be have quite a lot of privilege right. Yes, so it's a little different from obviously, obviously something like Flash, which is perhaps the best known example of how you increase your browser's attack surface area by 
adding complexity to an already complex thing. And of course, with Flash, what most people are using it for is not things like video conferencing and keyboard capture. They're using it to, for audio and video, watching videos. So as we all now know, particularly if you've got an iPhone or an Android, you don't need Flash. You can, on almost all sites, you can make do with HTML5. So there you've got this choice. You say, okay, well, I'll ditch Flash. I'll still be okay. But if you're using one of these dedicated video conferencing services that needs a bit more power to do its clever stuff than what a browser would normally be allowed. For example, your browser shouldn't by default be allowed to share the whole screen because obviously it's supposed to be limited to the browser itself. Then you're kind of stuck with the plugin. If you need this WebEx plugin because it's not yet patched for Internet Explorer and Firefox on Windows, then you're going to need to manage it carefully, perhaps disable it when you're not using it and only turn it on when you know you're going to host a webinar, for example. Yeah, and I mean, that's sort of my tactic with Flash, for example. I mean, uh, rather than turning it on and off, though, I just use a separate browser specifically for that purpose. It's sort of like, you know, when you, you, you allow an app access to your Twitter account or you allow an app access to your Facebook account to do something for you. It's kind of a good practice to go back every once in a while and see what you've enabled. And I guess maybe that's the advice for browser extensions. Like, it's a good idea to review them, see how trustworthy they are, make sure they're up to date, that kind of stuff. So you've posted all that on Naked Security. It's probably good for people to review. Yes, that's a great idea. The images, the screenshots that are in the Naked Security article on the WebEx bug, I created those specifically to deal with how to turn off the Cisco WebEx extension on Internet Explorer, for example. But go and have a look at that because it's worth learning how to how to if you can do it for Cisco WebEx, then you can do it for any extension. So it's worthwhile in my opinion, whichever browser you use on whichever platform, get to know all the menu items and all the configuration pages germane to all the additional stuff that goes along with your browser. So yeah, that's great advice of yours is learn how to find out what you've got added to your browser and learn how to control it. It's pretty easy to do so um, once you know where the configuration pages are. Now, moving on to another topic, Android, uh, turns out there was some research done showing that by observing someone using the screen lock pattern entry method of getting access to your Android, simply observing someone doing that uh, can get into a phone in five guesses or less. And, and we're not even necessarily talking about like me standing behind you and literally videoing you dragging your finger across the screen in the pattern, but more about even observing you at all, even from the side where you can't necessarily see the screen. It was possible most of the time, I think it was 95% of the time for these researchers to still determine your code just based on the pattern of how you moved your arm around and how you were holding the phone at what angle and this kind of thing. And well, I've always found that if you're, you know, if you're next to someone in the bus and you're both strap hanging and they're kind of leaning against the pomade, they're trying to unlock their phone. Now, I, I try not to look, but you can sort of make out when someone's typing in a pin. You can kind of see, well, a, a couple of the numbers were probably in the bottom row. But I found that when you when you glance someone doing one of those swipe patterns it pretty much burns into your brain, doesn't it? And of course, there was some research done by uh, a lady at DEF CON a couple of years ago, if I remember correctly, where she actually studied how people chose patterns and discovered that for all that patterns feel different from 
pins and passwords where we know that we're more likely to choose some words than others that actually we're more likely to choose certain patterns like I think she found that almost all patterns almost everybody has a crossover somewhere in the pattern because it kind of feels more random whereas of course it's actually much less random if you're forcing a pattern upon it so you're right I'm surprised that anyone's using the pattern because it kind of seems like the thing that's easiest to shoulder surf yeah that's a good point and I, I think this is another vote for if you want quick, easy, convenient access to your device and you want encryption, look at devices that have a biometric sensor. Yes, your fingerprints can be stolen. I understand. I mean, nothing is perfect. But on mobile devices, uh, I think a fingerprint's a heck of a lot better than the cross pattern that you mentioned and or what I see so many iPhone users doing. And I, I don't know why people think that, you know, 4343 is going to keep me out of their phone when the digits become almost the size of the phone's screen when you tap on them. Yes, and, that's, I mean, I've never understood that. Yeah, it's just, it's really uh, crazy. So, I mean, the fingerprint, while imperfect, isn't a bad alternative. Personally, I think that combined with a decent length password, I, I kind of like how that works on most of these devices. I know on my Android, every day or two, it comes up and goes, oh, well, you know, you've done the fingerprint too many times. What's your password again? And yet in between my 50 unlocks a day, I can tap the little reader. And I had a loner phone this week that did not have the fingerprint reader. And boy, I forgot how much I rely on that. <laughs> yeah, having your phone set to lock the screen after three minutes and having to unlock your phone every time with the full password is kind of a pain in the butt, right? So we're trying to find what is the balance between that convenience and yet uh, the the security that we'd prefer to have. So I, I kind of like that. I um, I have a I have a super long lock code and I've just got into the habit that I always lock my phone. I mean, I got on a very short lock time, one minute, but I always press the button, you know, unless I should forget. But uh, as a matter of course, you know, when I finish reading my email, I don't just put my phone down. I press the button to lock it. And I've just got used to the fact that I type in that code every single time. And if I do it 10, 20, 30 times a day, it's kind of just part of my digital lifestyle now. So the next story uh, is kind of a positive one. Usually we're telling the opposite story. But in this case, we're going to talk just for a minute about Dovecot. Now, most of our listeners probably don't know what Dovecot is unless they've had the uh, opportunity, the pleasure to work with products like Sophos Peer Message for Unix, like I have for so many years, where you are likely operating a Unix-based mail server for a large institution and uh, you need an IMAP server. And in the old days, the most popular and common IMAP server was called Cirrus IMAP. And uh, more recently, the uh, mail server du jour for uh, Unix systems has been Dovecot. And uh, there was a audit, a security audit done with Dovecot. I believe the money came from the Mozilla Foundation. That's what I understand. They also put the money up for the curl review, didn't they? Recent curl review. Yeah, I mean, well, I think this movement of auditing popular open source software in general is awesome. I think it's great that companies are standing up and foundations are recognizing how important it is that we have a secure foundation for the internet. And uh, But in addition to that, in this case, the report was rather unusual in that it pretty much said, yeah, wow, really secure code. Everything's good. Uh, proceed as usual. <laughs> Yes, of course, you always wonder, sometimes that can be something of a poisoned chalice, can't it? Hey, look how secure we are. Right. So there's always going to be someone who wants to find a hole thereafter. But my understanding is this was a, this was a proper professionally conducted review. And, you know, exactly as the, in fact, I think it may have been the same company that did the review on Curl. And the idea is that it's providing that kind of scrutiny that normally, ironically, you've only expected from 
proprietary software because the vendors taking some of the revenue they get from the software and you know part of the cost of development is actually having a code review done both internally and maybe by someone from outside so there was always that that open question for open source is well who's going to pay to do this in the same sort of way where it's not just some of the team who've developed it will then kind of go and have a look at it but we want to just take this thing kind of put in a little bag tie it up throw it over the wall to somebody else and say right go away and analyze it objectively independently and then come back without input from us and tell us what you found and as you say it's great that now there are some funds available for open source projects so great work by the mozilla foundation i agree we need more of that squirrel anyway we'll change topics to the squirrel then another interesting <laughs> topic because of the recent talk by cyber squirrel one and the fact that his website was updated and and he delivered a talk at the schmoocon security conference in washington dc recently and uh if you're not familiar with the cyber squirrel one uh this is a website that tracks the amount of uh outages of power and electricity on the power grid caused by squirrels and other animals compared to the number caused by cyber war and uh, up until recently, uh, I believe the squirrels had a significant advantage compared to cyber war. But uh, then the cyber war numbers crept up from one incident to three incidences. There's a website where you can go and say, show me, you know, I want to see rodents. I want to see <laughs> whatever it is. So there, there are all sorts of examples. Eagles. There was baboons in Zimbabwe that uh, decided they'd chow through a, the, the power lines to a radio station. And apparently in that case, it's documented that there was actually a cost. I mean, not just the cost of repairing the power lines, but the outage happened when they were about to air some ads. And of course, then the guy who'd pay for the ads wouldn't pay for them. So that it actually cost them 1200 bucks. So that it was uh, it was a kind of denial of service with a real cost. Yeah, I mean, we know that the the animals actually probably cause about, you know, a thousand times more than what we know of as well, right? This guy is just going through public reports of public utilities saying that they had an outage. For example, I'm looking at it now, there were, you know, 13 outages caused by jellyfish, 36 by rat, 15 by beaver, you know, this kind of thing. And and the truth is of the matter 36 is... 36 rats caused one outage? No, I, pr I think it's or 36 separate outages. one rat caused outages. 36 outages. Ah, ah, so it could be 36 different rats. It's not one like really, really, really evil rat that's got it in for, for uh, internet connectivity. No, no, exactly. But I mean, these are only the ones that are being publicly reported. And uh, at the moment, humans are three, which we believe yeah. to be Stuxnet and the two outages in the Ukraine that uh, may or may not have been uh, performed by an aggressive neighbor. Yes, I, of course, it is all it is all tongue in cheek. And it doesn't mean that, well, actually because we don't think that squirrels are going to cause the end of the cyber world as we know it that we don't need to defend against cyber attackers i think the idea of that whole cyber squirrel one website it's to get us if you like to rethink how readily we trot out words like cyber terrorism and cyber war i don't think cyber squirrel one is suggesting that we give up building better defenses for skader equipment and the power grid and so forth 
I, I totally agree. And that's kind of going to lead us pretty well into Data Privacy Day, which is tomorrow. Every year on January the 28th, we kind of try to get the word out about privacy. And, and there's a lot of different ways to look at this. Uh, you know, you can look at it as an individual and how you share the information that you share and that kind of thing. Or you can also look at it as a business. And uh, I just thought maybe each of us would give a quick tip or a favorite thing that we'd like to remind people about for the coming year with regard to privacy. And to me, uh, I'm looking at this from a standpoint of uh, data collection that businesses are doing. If you're involved in helping a company with uh, IT, you're likely involved in helping with building websites and storing data and databases and all this kind of thing. And I think it's really important to be uh, upfront and clear that people understand uh, how you're going to treat their data with respect, right? They're, if you're going to share information with your organization, be really clear about what are you collecting? Why is it that you need it? If you're going to ask somebody for their birthday and the name of their first cat, there should be a pretty good reason for it. And don't tell me it so I can reset my password because that is not a good reason. You know, think about what you're collecting, only collect what you need. But I'd also like to know as a user of your tools or your system or a customer of yours, how are you going to destroy that data when you're finished with it? And when will you be finished with it? And I think if you, if you can be really upfront about those things, not only will you prevent yourself from having a whole lot of work because you collected stuff that you didn't realize was going to get regulated and is actually considered sensitive, you're also going to uh, gain the, the respect and confidence of your customers about being a good digital citizen and helping them navigate the dangerous waters of data theft. Absolutely. I think my advice to companies in respect to Privacy Day, it, yeah, kind of the flip side of, of your point is something that really bugs me is that it's all very well to collect the data and make me create an account and let me to interact with you but this I've particularly found this in the UK free Wi-Fi places do it for example well you've got to sign up and they want you to have a username and a password not they won't just take your email address and then send you a one-time password to use today so you create this account in their system somewhere I get why they do this and then you can use that to log in you know, wherever you are at this particular company's Wi-Fi hotspots in the UK in future. Show me a button that says, now I want to get rid of my account. There are so many companies that seem to be making me create accounts or wanting me to create accounts. And I can only infer that they intend to keep that account with my username and my password active forever and ever and ever. Amen. And I don't like that idea because I'd like to know when I'm done with those guys, I'm just going to close the account and move on and I'm leaving nothing behind. But surely it's in your interest as a person opening that account where data protection regulations are likely to change and get stricter over time. Surely you don't want every person who ever created an account ever, say on your bus free Wi-Fi service, you're going to keep all of those accounts and all of those passwords and store them securely forever so that you end up with, you know, one and a half billion accounts in a giant database like some company beginning with Y <laughs> had a problem with. But yeah, we, we, we need to work on all this stuff, review your policies and your procedures. And this stuff is truly important. And when you, you know, to your point, Doc, you know, the fines are often based on the number of records leaked. Wouldn't it be nice if you had a few <laughs> less records? Uh, on that note, if you'd like to talk to us about what we can do to help you protect some data, uh, a bunch of us 
at Sophos will be at the RSA conference in San Francisco, California, starting February 13th. And we would love it if you came by and said hello to us. I'm going to be there. James Lyon is going to be there. Mark Lohman, John Shire, and a whole bunch of other Sophos people that you uh, may know and have interacted with. So if you're going to be in the San Francisco area, please join us. You can get a free pass from Sophos if you go to our website, sophos.com, and you click on company and then choose the submenu events. You will see uh, RSA conference at the top of the list. On that note, we'll conclude Sofa Security Chat Chat 257. As always, for the latest security news, we invite you to go to nakedsecurity.sophos.com. All of our podcasts are available via TuneIn. They're on iTunes, they're available via RSS, or over at soundcloud.com slash sofa security. And until next week, stay secure.